Hello and welcome to the PJ Pod, brought to you by the Pharmaceutical Journal, the Royal Pharmaceutical Society's official journal. This episode is a research spotlight where we'll highlight an interesting paper from one of our sister journals, talk through the findings of the work and take a look where it sits in the wider context. This episode is on deprescribing. Deprescribing has become quite fashionable, quite trendy in the research space over the last 20 years and more recently in the policy and practice space as well. This is Sean Scott, lecturer in behavioural medicine at the University of Leicester and recent guest editor for a themed collection on deprescribing for the International Journal of Pharmacy Practice, who focus on high quality peer-reviewed content in health services research, specifically relating to aspects of the medication use process. Deprescribing was first coined 20 years ago in an article by Michael C. Woodward, so it's quite nice of Deprescribing's 20th uh, anniversary that we've now got this, the launch of this themed collection. Wonderful timing, I'm sure you'll agree. Also in this episode, you'll hear from the author of one of the papers in this Deprescribing collection, Hamdi Nazar. But let's start with Sean. So ever since medicines have been prescribed, there's been an expectation that they are regularly reviewed. And if they become inappropriate, either because they're not benefiting the patient anymore or because actually they're more likely to cause harm than, than the benefit that they offer, then, then medicine should be stopped. As you've heard, deprescribing isn't a new concept. The terms existed for two decades. But we're now reaching a point where the amount of literature on the topic is substantial. That body of literature has has really exploded over the last sort of five to ten years, and it's accelerating at a, at a, at a real pace. And, and we've reached this point now where we think, actually, there's a lot out there, lots of people doing different things, um, and it would be great to have cut all of that kind of cherry-picked and put into, a, into one place, into one repository, where we can continue to add to that over time as well. So, so what's nice about this themed collection is it will be a live themed collection. It will continue to be added to over time. A live themed collection is a nice way to track the evolution of a particular field. I asked Sean how research into deprescribing has developed over the years. So from a research perspective, um, historically research has focused on trying to understand what's happening in practice at the moment. Um, so in the absence of any intervention, just how much deprescribing are people doing at the moment? And I think unsurprisingly, we find that there's very little deprescribing happening, particularly what we call proactive deprescribing, so stopping medicines before they cause a problem, um, rather than, than reactive deprescribing, which is stopping medicines after they've caused a problem. We're, we're quite good at that in practice, uh, but, but not not particularly effective at proactive deprescribing. So that's where the, the evidence base kind of started and, and where it's been historically. What we've seen more of over the last five years is research and, and policy pivoting towards, right, we know this is a problem, what are the solutions? And it's that more recent flavour of deprescribing research that we wanted to shine a spotlight on today. Hamdan Azar is a senior lecturer at the School of Pharmacy at Newcastle University. And she recently published a paper aiming to understand the enablers and barriers of deprescribing inappropriate analgesia in community pharmacy. Hamde and her team utilised a behavioural change model to identify problems and potential interventions in this scenario. I'll let Hamde explain more. 
So it was basically a qualitative piece of work. Uh, we wanted to speak to community pharmacists out in practice to really understand their experiences and perceptions uh, with regards to this problem. So we looked to recruit initially community pharmacists in the region, so that's in the northeast, and that was taking a convenience sampling approach. And when we had returned consent forms sent through, we then were able to contact those pharmacists, undertake an interview either face-to-face on the telephone or using Zoom or Teams. Those interviews were transcribed verbatim and then we used a approach called um, framework analysis to analyze those transcripts. And then we used the um, behavioral models to I suppose to give a lens um, when we were analysing the data to understand what the barriers and facilitators were related to the behaviours and map those to the components of the behavioural model. And the next step was then to understand if we could look at those barriers and facilitators and using a behaviour change taxonomy we were able to identify if there were particular interventions that could be used within a design of a strategy to help pharmacists, community pharmacists particularly, become more involved in the identification and tackling uh, inappropriate medication use in the pharmacy. The interviews demonstrated that community pharmacists were generally positive about being involved in identifying and addressing inappropriate analgesia and saw it as being aligned to their clinical role. They also expressed that they had the correct clinical training and the pharmacological knowledge However, the participants did think there were some barriers. Potentially, they lacked the um, the skills and confidence in the sense of having those conversations with patients in that setting. Um, they also spoke about how community pharmacy services generally are funded in the pharmacy and the way the, the model currently works is that it doesn't necessarily... Um, incentivize de-prescribing of these medicines in in pharmacy so one of the suggestions was looking more broadly about how clinical services are funded through community pharmacy Um, pharmacists also spoke about the opportunity to see a patient's um, care record to identify if a medication was actually being misused or uh, inappropriately being prescribed if a pharmacist wasn't able to see that patient's record and see that history of when that medication might have been prescribed and when it may have been used, then they can't really build a picture around um, if that medication is indeed being used inappropriately. Another consideration that was discussed was the opportunities presented by working in multidisciplinary teams. And then the other thing they spoke about was having a better intra-professional relationship with prescribers. So for example, GPs, if there was a better relationship and a better communication, then this problem, which could be addressed by the prescriber or by a community pharmacist or anyone really along the chain of prescribing, administrating, supplying a medicine. All of those touch points really provide an opportunity to tackle the problem. So really all those people involved in those different steps could be working better together to solve the problem. Hamde told me that the barriers and facilitators to de-prescribing that emerged from her research weren't particularly surprising. I suppose this piece of work, um, the barriers and facilitators that we uncovered aren't unusual to, if we think about other clinical services that people are exploring to bring into community pharmacy, many of the 
barriers that exist with this particular problem also exist for other clinical services. So things like digital integration, um, pharmacists having the opportunity to view and edit patient records, better working relationships with primary care, so prescribers. Um, so I suppose the point is that these barriers are well acknowledged. Um, similarly, the barrier with regards to how community pharmacy services within England are funded has been recognised for quite a while now. So I suppose this piece of work really kind of adds further evidence to considerations that are required for policy and practice quite broadly that would help quite a lot of clinical services that are being explored within community pharmacy. We wanted to hear how Hamde and her team plan to build on the work. The next steps, as we've kind of recommended, I suppose, and at the end of our paper, would be to talk to the other stakeholders. I think the key group we wanted to talk to were uh, general practitioners, the prescribers, um, to really get their perspectives on involving pharmacists within um, identifying and tackling an appropriate medication use. I think also given the growing role of the PCN pharmacist, the primary care um, network pharmacist, GP based pharmacists, it'd be good to have their insights as well um, to kind of understand if there are different roles that could be played by these different stakeholders. And I suppose think about it as a um, clinical pathway maybe about how those different people might have different responsibilities yes and think about it quite systematically in that way. Hamdi mentioned that the main limitation to her study was getting enough participants. We didn't happen to recruit very much um, given the fact that we were trying to recruit during I suppose quite a high point of the COVID pandemic. So we then branched out more widely and used platforms like LinkedIn, Twitter, and other social media platforms to recruit community pharmacists nationally to speak to them. As with all qualitative studies, they, you know, they're subject to a good level of recruitment. We did recruit 12 community pharmacists. However, we found that they all came from bar one, I believe. They all came from chain um, pharmacies. They tend to be quite big. Um, companies, it would have been good to get a better breadth of community pharmacists, so representation from independent pharmacy um, and potentially smaller uh, community groups. Um, also, I think we had quite a lot that were based in the northeast. So again, a, a wider geographical spread would have been good, maybe to capture some wider experiences. Hamde also highlighted the importance of engaging a range of stakeholders. The other limitation is obviously we've only really looked at the community pharmacy perspective and if we think about um, tackling this as a problem, I again I kind of inferred that it could be tackled from various perspectives and I think it'd be good to really speak to a, a wide range of stakeholders including prescribers, commissioners, as you can imagine if this is going to be a commission service to really understand if there is potential to solve this problem in the community pharmacy or if not it might be a role better placed within um, GP practice where again we have pharmacists working better probably um, because they're simply closer to doctors within that within that space. Guest editor Sean reflected that this work addresses some of the challenges community pharmacy is facing as it moves from the more traditional role of dispensing to being more clinical and patient facing. I think it also directly um, Respond to some of the recommendations in the National Over Prescribing Review to so this this review commissioned by the UK government to understand how we can tackle over prescribing. Uh, community pharmacists clearly have a key role in that, and I think this paper 
with the foundations that it provides for developing interventions it is something that, that I would definitely be looking for intervention to come out of and, and potentially aligning with, with that policy as well. He also highlighted the lack of research relating to deprescribing in community pharmacy and the importance of work like that completed by Hamday and her team to address this. So actually I would really like to see this paper perhaps leading in the future to kind of keep community pharmacy up with that general trend we've got in deprescribing which is now testing these interventions because actually what we need to do is, is whilst in theory designing interventions to address these barriers is likely to be successful, what we, what we really need is then high quality trials and in order for the NHS to commission these services, which is obviously the model that, that community pharmacy operates on, we need to know that they are effective, we need to know that they're safe um, and we need to know that they're cost effective. And so what, what we're now starting to see is far more of these trials and, and as I said, a, a community pharmacy deprescribing trial I think would be something um, that, that we could be a real leader in um, because actually they're on and um, undertaken at the moment and I, I don't think they're any in the pipeline either. That's a good stopping point for today's episode. Thank you to Sean for walking us through the current landscape of deprescribing and to Hamday for talking us through her work. We'll leave a link to the themed collection where Hamday's paper can be found and any other relevant resources, including a previous learning episode of the PJ Pod that covered effective deprescribing in the show notes. This research spotlight episode of the PJ Pod is part of the October Digital Issue, which can be found on our homepage, pharmaceutical-journal.com. That's it for today. Please do follow us on whatever podcast platform you use and let us know what you thought of the episode on social media using the hashtag PJPod. Until next time, goodbye.